I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. From the Society for Nautical Research, I'm Sam Willis, and this the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. It's Saturday, the 14th of November. This continues our series of excerpts from the logbook of the whaler Swan of Hull from 1836. She's trapped in the ice in the Davis Straits between Baffin Island and the west coast of Greenland. It's been a dull week. It's very dark most of the time, and conditions are worsening. Tuesday, 8th November. Calm. The sun being only half an hour above the horizon and her meridian altitude only eight miles. PM, two foxes close under the ship's stern. Shot one of them with a fine brown colour from the taffrails. Thursday, 10th November, 1836. Northeastern light winds this day. Replenish the oil cask from the ship's cargo with same quantity of neat oil as before. 22 gallons. At noon, the upper limb of the sun was just perceptible above the horizon. This day ending with clear weather, the land in sight. Thermometer, minus ten degrees. Saturday, 12th November. Easts and light breezes the whole of this day. A 240-gallon cask cut up for firewood, number 41. 7pm saw two foxes under the ship's stern, but owing to it being dark, the guns did not take effect. Thermometer, five below zero. Sunday, 13th of November. Northeastern light breezes with fine clear weather the forepart of this day. 7pm, strong northerly gales. Divine service between decks this day as usual. Thermometer, 15 degrees below zero. Measurements taken today in the exact location where the swan was beset show that the ice finally has begun to appear and it's well behind the average measured between 1981 and 2010. By now, the swan had already been trapped there for a month. Looking back through her log, we can see exactly when the ship was first beset and how dreadful that news was. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Mariner's Mirror podcast. This week, we have a fascinating but also a troubling topic. News has reached us that 10, yes, 10, magnificent and contemporary hand-drawn maps of the Spanish Armada campaign of 1588 have surfaced in the hands of a London dealer and have been sold to a private collection. 
Now, the British culture minister has placed an export ban on these images, which depict the greatest naval battle of the early modern period. The drawings were completed by an unknown draftsman, possibly from the Netherlands, and are undated, though they are thought to be from the years immediately after the battle. It's impossible to overstate the importance of these maps. They are the only surviving contemporary drawings of this battle that was so instrumental in shaping the modern world. To find out more, I'm talking to Professor Dominic Tweddle. He is the Director General of the National Museum of the Royal Navy. Hi, Dominic. Hi, Sam. Now, tell me about these maps. They sound absolutely fascinating. Well, they're a set of 10 maps, um, and what they do is they tell the story of the Armada from its first sighting uh, off Cornwall, or off Plymouth, actually, uh, right through to the Battle of Graveline. So um, day by day, or sometimes two days on a single map, they're telling this story rather like a strip cartoon. Ah, yeah. And they're beautifully, beautifully illustrated, aren't they? The detail of them is amazing. They are lovely. They're astonishing. I thought they were just going to be quite simple things. But actually, when you focus in on them, um, there's all sorts of detail, like um, people throwing themselves off burning ships. And you think, <laughs> oh, that squiggle is a bloke, actually. Yeah, it's that kind of detail that makes you um, kind of convinces you that he's the, the, the artist has been talking to someone has actually fa- found um, found out particular accounts of events that he wants to fit in. Absolutely. So they're they're astonishing, and of course they sit next to the written record. Um, some slight variations from Lord Hang Howard of Effingham's account, but not very many, um, and that's what is quite interesting about them. Where have they come from? Well, they actually have been kicking around since the 17th century. They very unusually have a long provenance, um, because we're worried about that kind of thing, in in case somebody painted them in an attic last week. They didn't. (laughs) Okay. Um, So they have a long provenance back to the 17th century. They were bought by William Waldorf Astor uh, in the mid-19th century, and they've been in his family ever since. I don't suppose they've thought very much about them until they sold them recently. So the situation is that they've been sold to a private collector, but there's a chance for uh, the money to be raised to keep them in the UK. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. So they were sold by um, whoever sold them, and we don't know who, to a book dealer in London, who then sold them on to a private collector. Perfectly reasonable. They were then what is called export barred. So the um, Export Reviewing Committee, which would have to look at giving them a license to leave the country, decided they shouldn't be allowed to leave the country without a British institution having a chance to buy them. Okay. so uh, how much how much money does needs to be raised and how much has been raised so far? Well, we need to raise £600,000, which, if you say it fast, is not so, not so daunting. Um, we've raised 171000 so far. So I'm a, I'm a glass half, half full man. So we're nearly halfway there. Yeah. Um, Bearing in mind there are 10 of them. I mean, it actually kind of reduces the price down a little bit for each one, doesn't it, if you think about it like that? Personally, I think they're a bargain. Um, so, you know... 600,000, I think, is achievable. And I think our next step is now to ask the Art Fund and the National Heritage Memorial Fund 
if they will help. That's the kind of thing they do. That's what they're there for. Yeah, uh, but there's also the chance of you know the public being able to to um, donate generously should they so wish. Absolutely. Um, a lot of the money that we've got so far, well, £71,000 of it, has come from public donations, and every penny counts. It's, it's great. You know, there's a fiver or a tenner or whatever. It all goes into this um, wonderful campaign. Yeah. Let's talk about the charts a bit more. Um, why are they so important? Well, in the modern world, um, it's really true that... Um, a picture is worth a thousand words. In fact, it's worth rather more than a thousand words as we become more digital and more um, image savvy. And although you can read the account of the Armada, and there are various quite good accounts of it that are contemporary, they don't quite grab you in the same way that these maps do. And these maps are, are probably highly contemporary. We can't say that they were made just after the Armada was defeated. But it isn't very long after if they were made afterwards, which they probably were. So it just sets it out for you and it really grabs you in a way that the words don't. Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a real window into one of the most important campaigns in English history. I suppose that's, that's part of the importance, isn't it? The linking it to this broader story. It is. Um, and if you've, you know, clearly we've had to think a little bit about the Armada. And I think it is the point at which um, England, and it is England at that particular point, or England and Wales, in fact, um, suddenly looks at itself and says, crikey, we're a world power. We're a world naval power. And I, and I genuinely think that's the turning point. Um, you know, you wake up one morning and think you've defeated the world's premier naval power, the global superpower, and um, good grief, we must... There must be something going for us. God was on our side, obviously, was the, was the message at the time. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think one of the, the, the most impactful things about it is seeing the scale of the fleets involved, which you can't, can't kind of get your head around it unless they're like put visually in front of you. And here you have this image of the English Channel with enormous fleets. They're like um, uh, birds almost, aren't they? Kind of flying up. They are enormous. Um, we tend to think of you know, the Spanish fleet as enormous and then the English fleet as a few plucky ships going out there to confront them. Actually, no, um, there were over 130 English ships um, chasing the Armada up the channel. Um, and so there were these huge engagements. Um, you, know, you can speculate how, how effective the the gunfire was and all that kind of thing. But there were these huge ship-to-ship -ship, um, engagements, fleet-to-fleet -fleet engagements, running up the channel over 10 days. Yeah, I mean, it was 130 ships. Uh, you know, if you think there are 27 at the Battle of Trafalgar, so, so 130. <laughs> and, you know, exactly. visually, the, seeing how he's picked them out is wonderful. But what do we know about the man who actually made these, these maps? The thing is, we don't know who made them. What we do know is there's a set of engravings which appear to be based on them, made by um, a pair of people called Adams and Ryder. And they were published, um, but they're at a slightly smaller scale. And so they, they, they've got less impact because the fleets have become um, less prominent. And frankly, Queen Elizabeth's coat of arms has become a great deal more prominent, <laughs> which we could have well done without, really. Um, but I'm sure that's the right message at the time. So 
though we don't know who actually made them. But what we do know is that one of the maps has a Flemish um, inscription along the lower margin. And we can see that inscriptions have been removed from other examples of the maps. So they're clearly made by a Fleming, not surprising, um, because they were the best map makers of the period. And we, we think they were the foundation for these amazing tapestries, which used to hang in the House of Lords. They were sort of a, an influence upon those. Is that correct? They, they probably were. Um, the tapestries were a great loss, um, slightly singed when the um, House of Lords burnt down um, and completely lost. Um, but there are engravings of the tapestries surviving, 18th century engravings. Indeed, we have a set in our collection. And it's interesting to compare the two. They're clearly one source that went into those tapestries. They too were made for Lord Howard of Effingham. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's this clear and fascinating link between uh, visual representations of the Armada. And I, I've seen some images of the 17th century with people sitting in the House of Lords with these enormous tapestries behind them. And they were there for 250 years. Yes, perhaps more interesting than many of the Lord's debates, really. Um, <laughs> it makes you wonder if everyone was just staring at them, absorbing yeah. maritime history. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. What, what is Joe Bloggs going on about? Well, these, these maps, these tapestries are much more interesting. I would be with that. But yes, they were, they were an important part of the kind of iconography of the state until their loss. Yeah. And so these, these, these maps that we're talking about, uh, they're almost like the sort of the first rung of the ladder, aren't they, of anyone attempting to, to visualise the Armada and what, what happened there. Um, in what way do you think they, those images influence the way that we think about the Armada? That's a, it's a really interesting question. I think that we kind of have... Do many people think about the Armada these days? Would be my first question. We all know about it. You know. <laughs> That's um, a very good point. We know about it, but do we think about it? Nice. But we, I'm not sure that we think about it. If we think about it all, we just think of the big ticket items, you know, the, the, the bullies um, from Spain, the plucky, the plucky English fighting them off, you know, um, the storm which scattered the ships, the fire ships, all that kind of stuff we kind of know about. I think this gives you um, something, I think what the, the images do is give you something of a sense of how long the fight took. This was a 10-day battle. Uh, how carefully and well it was orchestrated, both by the Spanish and the English. The, you know, the Spanish kept their formation together right the way up the channel, which was a formidable achievement. And the English managed to get behind them and push them through the channel so they did, never had the opportunity to land. The Isle of Wight would have been a good place in retrospect. Uh, and that actually is quite impressive, really quite impressive. And I don't think you get the sense of that from any other documents. Yeah. And in terms of sort of England's complex identity, which, which is kind of manifested through so many years of difficult history. It, it fits into that as well, I think, that, that this sense of being invaded and defending against invasion. It, it kind of creates an idea of an island nation, just looking at these images. Oh, it certainly does. You know, we are threatened from overseas, and that has played out um, 
really ever since. You know, invasion might happen at any minute. And of course, in retrospect, we say, well, of course, the Spanish had no chance. I don't think that was the case, actually. Um, I think they had a pretty good chance, an overcomplicated plan, one might think, but they had a pretty good chance. Uh, and I think we felt invulnerable to some degree ever since. You know, we will fight off the. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The ghastly foreigners. Very curious. Um, but that has fed into the nation's psyche, I think. Yeah. Why do you think it's so important that these are brought into public ownership and put on public display? Well, I think there are very few um, moments at which you can say this happened and it has such a huge consequences. If you, if you think about it, if Elizabeth had lost, the, um, this country would have been, become Catholic. Um, she might even have been overthrown and replaced. Uh, and we would have a very different history. And I think it also that this is so embedded in the psyche of the nation, and I'm, I'm talking not just about England, but Wales, the Tudors were half Welsh, and then later incorporated into a British identity. I think that, that such a moment ought to be properly reflected for the public in Britain to see and experience and to share in. Yeah. Do you think more generally that private collectors should allow scholars and students access to their collections? I think many private collectors do. I think many private collectors lend on a, a fairly substantive scale. 
um, to um, museums such as ours, and we're very grateful to them for doing it. And it's always an interesting balance to strike, isn't it? The rights of private individuals and their right to private property, which is very powerful in British law, English law, uh, and then um, the rights of the nation to have access to the key um, documents of its history. It's we're never going to solve this on a on a single podcast, um, but it's a really interesting debate, isn't it? Yeah. Have you had to work with um, an export banned item before, or is this the first time you've come across it? No, this is the first time uh, for us. It's a it's a well known procedure for all museums. Um, it is. It's the case that it's the more expensive items usually that are export banned or export barred. And um, it's always a struggle to raise the money. So you've got to be very careful about which things you think you can support and achieve and which things you think, no, that's not for us. Yeah. It's reassuring that such a thing that even exists. I'm, I'm slightly interested in the history of export bans. Do we, do we know when they were, they, they were introduced? Um, I probably should know, but if I knew, I've forgotten. Um, <laughs> But they're relatively, they're relatively recent. There are certain criteria which are laid out um, for objects to actually be export barred. It's not anything the committee thinks is wonderful. There are certain criteria called the Waverley criteria, which have to be met, which go to the uh, importance of the object um, in terms of its um, association with Britain. Uh, and then um, the committee has the difficult job of sitting down and saying, well, we think we should export ban something and try and get a British institution to raise the money. Yeah. How would, how would these, these maps fit in with your, your broader collection at the National Museum of the Royal Navy? Well, we tell the long story of the Royal Navy from whenever you think it begins. And there's, my God, there's a literature on that one. <laughs> um, right through to the present day and actually with a look through to the future of where is the Navy going? Um, so it fits in with our broad um, narrative. I think we've given insufficient attention to the early part of that narrative, partly because Mary Rose sits across the, um, across the dockyard and tells the story of um, at least the Navy of Henry VIII so well. But there's more to the Tudor Navy than just that story, as important as it is. So I think, it, I think we need to do more. And actually, one of the things that we have in the collection is the bell of the Ark Royal, formerly the Ark Rally, which, of course, was the flagship of the English fleet during the Armada campaign. And very splendid it is, but it hasn't been on display for some time. Mm. Yeah, it must be uh, so exciting to, be, uh, to have your job and then to decide <laughs> on, on the strategy and the directions of the museum. Uh, do, you, do you have a great deal of material that's not been on display for a long time? Or um, how, how does your focus on what, what gets shown to the public move? Um, yes, like all museums, we have rather more than we would like, which is in store. But then we collect things for various reasons, some of which is because they will be interesting to the public and some of which because they're scholarly and they're a scholarly interest and actually a collection of 8,000 buttons from the Royal Marines is going to pull the backside off most people, uh, including me, um, and we wouldn't, the public probably could be spared them. But within that, there are things that actually we ought to be displaying and are not, and that's 
partly because we don't have the space. So we've got a gallery development program, which is allowing us to bring more material onto display. And we're taking more material also to our other museums in Hartlepool, Fleet Air Arm and in Belfast. Yeah. And we're talking today just as the second lockdown has been imposed. How are you guys coping with, with, with COVID? Uh, I think the second lockdown were okay. The first lockdown was a bit scary because we lost 81% of our income overnight because we rely to a great degree on admissions income. Um, that meant that we had to furlough most of our people. I think we were down to a handful of people and we had to find some money to fill the gap in a tearing hurry. And to be fair, uh, the Navy, um, which we serve, uh, came through strongly there and found the money for us. But you still have to go through some ghastly process with you know, the Navy and then with the Treasury to get it all approved. And you think, God, will this never end? Yeah. But it did, and the result was positive. Yeah. And, and how, can, how can the public help, rather than, other than just waiting to come and, and uh, to, to march around your wonderful museum when the gates open again? Well, the public can help in a number of ways. They can donate to campaigns like the Armada Maps. Really, really important that we have public support. They can buy tickets online. Yes, you can't come at the minute, but you can buy a ticket. And then um, the minute you come through the dockyard gate, if you buy an all-attraction ticket, it will be valid for a year. So you haven't lost anything by buying it now. And some people during the campaign, during the closure, simply sent us a cheque, which was very welcome. Um, and all of these are possible ways of supporting. Um, and all support is very welcome. Museums are, in the end, communities. They're not just scholars in ivory towers, especially not that, I think, in these days, but we're communities and we have stakeholders and people who love us and want to visit. And, and it's important to maintain, maintain that um, community through lockdown and through these difficult times. Yeah, well, I have to say that the, your National Museum of the Royal Navy is a, is a truly wonderful place, and I wish you all the best. Um, listeners, if you want to find out more about these maps, do check out nmrn.org.uk forward slash armada-maps. That's where you can find out all about it and you can donate, and any help will be hugely, hugely appreciated. Thank you very much, Dominic. Thanks very much, Sam. That's great. Here's what these remarkable maps show. Map 1. Friday 29th of July, the Armada is sighted off the Lizard. The fleet consists of 138 ships and over 24,000 men. They are shown here in pre-battle formation as a circular clump. They are spotted by the Golden Hind, an English scout ship. She is shown firing her warning signal towards Plymouth. Meanwhile, a Spanish ship breaks off from the Armada and captures an English fishing boat off Dodman Point. Map 2, 30th of July, 9am to the 31st of July. The first engagement. The Armada is now in a crescent-shaped battle formation, the vulnerable troop ships in the centre, the fast warships on the wings. 
The English fleet is shown leaving Plymouth and following a zigzag course before regrouping to the west of the Armada. A small English ship, the Disdain, is shown firing the opening shot of the battle. Map 3, 31st of July. The skirmish of Plymouth. The Spanish and English are shown fighting. The battle lasts some four hours. Later in the battle, a Spanish flagship becomes damaged in a collision. She's left behind with four guard ships. Against orders, Francis Drake in the Revenge leaves his position in the English fleet and is shown sailing to capture her. Meanwhile, an explosion severely damages a large Spanish warship, the San Salvador. By now, the Armada has lost its distinctive crescent-shaped formation. Map 4. Sunday 31st of July to Monday 1st of August. The capture of the Rosario. The Armada is pursued east. Drake is left behind as he captures the Rosario. Debris from the damaged Spanish ships floats in the sea to the bottom of the chart. The Armada regains its formation and is pursued by the English eastwards. Map 5. 1st of August to the 2nd of August. The capture of the San Salvador and the engagement near Portland Bill. The San Salvador is now burning freely and she is set adrift, captured by the English. Reinforcements from various ports in England, including Dartmouth, Torbay and Exmouth, are shown sailing out to join the English fleet. Battle is rejoined off Portland in two separate combats. Map 6. Tuesday 2nd of August to Wednesday 3rd of August. Engagement of the fleets between Portland Bill and the Isle of Wight. The battle rages off Portland Bill. The English fleet is split with a small group attacking the right flank of the Armada. The following day, the Armada once again retains its crescent formation. The English split into four distinct squadrons to make it easier to respond with speed. Map 7. Thursday the 4th of August. The battle off the Isle of Wight. The English launch a new attack, but the light winds and calm sea force them to use rowing boats to pull their ships towards the Spanish. Drake harasses the southern wing, trying to drive the Spanish northwards into dangerous and shallow waters. Map 8. Friday 5th of August to Saturday the 6th of August. The pursuit to Calais. Battle calms now as both sides preserve ammunition and repair. The Spanish still retain their distinctive formation. More reinforcements are shown sailing from English ports. The Spanish head for Calais and anchor. Map 9. Sunday the 7th of August. The fireship attack. More reinforcements sail from Dover. The English wait until night and then launch eight fireships. The Spanish raise anchor and successfully manoeuvre out of danger and reform. Map 10. Monday the 8th of August. The Battle of Gravelines. One large Spanish galleas runs aground just off Calais and is attacked. The guns of Calais fire at the English. Three Spanish ships ablaze run aground in Dunkirk. The English fleet falls on the Spanish focused on the flagship of the Spanish commander Medina Sidonia. 
The Spanish are shown in significant distress. One ship is shown sinking more, heading towards the dangerous Flemish sandbanks. And yet, the Spanish still retain their formation. It's at this point that a sudden change in the wind direction to west-southwest pushes the Armada away from the shore and out towards the North Sea, ending any chance of the Spanish fleet rendezvousing with Palma or invading England. The Armada, with almost no ammunition, severe damage and injured sailors, is now faced with a journey home around the north of Scotland and Ireland. They are harried for four more days by the English before they are left alone for their 750-mile storm-lashed journey in which around 40 Spanish ships were wrecked. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our podcast this week. You can find a video showing these maps on the Mariner's Mirror podcast YouTube page. It's our first video. We're very excited about it. Be sure to subscribe there and see everything that we're going to produce. You can find us on Instagram on the Mariner's Mirror pod. And of course, you can follow the Society for Nautical Research on Twitter at Nautical History and on Facebook. Do please get in touch if you've got any ideas for podcasts or any exciting news to share. Thanks, guys. Bye.